0: If then a child, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Whatever is Christ's is ours. Amen? And that's a lot. We are a privileged, grace filled people. It's good to see everybody this morning. We've got mothers of the LGBT kids on one side and bikers on the other. Welcome to Grace (laughs) Point. So, what a good day so far. Fourth and fifth graders, y'all ready to go to class? Fourth and fifth graders, you guys head out. All of our kids, sixth through twelfth graders, you guys head to your classes as well. It is good to have um, Freed Ministries. Susan Cottrell uh, read a book some time ago by this mother somewhere out of Texas before I knew who she was that somebody had passed along a book, small book, and I read through it really, really wonderful. Susan and her husband Robert started a ministry called Freed Hearts. Part of that ministry is gathering together uh, parents, especially moms, I suppose, of kids who happen to be uh, in the LGBT community. They were here this weekend. She does little retreats all over the country so people can geographically kind of coalesce. And I got to spend three hours with those mothers yesterday. And that was quite an event. <laughs> Bunch of, yeah, a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of menopausal women. Um, and they were, they were talking about it. It was quite uncomfortable for a while. <laughs> but We had a great, great time. They went to one of the clubs here in town last night and were announced as mothers who support their kids and, and kids lined up in that place longing for hugs and y'all passed out hugs last night to kids who hadn't been hugged in a long time great ministry called bikers for christ you guys have we all know about the biker culture and in the midst of that biker culture a great ministry years ago decades ago rose up called bikers for christ it's international these guys have guys and gals have chapters everywhere and they minister in a different way, in a different place. Aren't you amazed at how beautiful the body of Christ is? And these guys, and uh, they're here this morning because one of their friends, Maggie, is gonna get baptized in just a little while. So they're here and we're (laughs) glad for that. So, as always the case, I've got about three hours of stuff and 28 minutes to get it done. So y'all raise your hand at 11 and say, "Got to be over because we got three baptisms and there's nothing that the church does that's more beautiful than baptism." And I don't want to rush those. So we got three baptisms, and an offering, and uh, a couple of other things. So we're gonna shut it down at 11, okay. and uh, we'll come back and hit it again if we don't get it all done. All right. So the reason Pastor Melissa's up here is her resp- One of her responsibilities is to curate, put together our Sunday morning worship services and as you can tell every part uh, of our service is carefully prepared and then carefully pieced together into what we hope to be a cohesive whole one element of the worship service is the sermon the message the lesson whatever you want to call it little lady at my church growing up used to walk up to me after everyone and said that was a good little talk sonny and so uh, (laughs) Um, My dad used to say, good messages are like biscuits. They both go better with a little shortening. (laughs) Well, one element of the service is the sermon. And per that particular piece, for those that don't know it, sometime we let you behind the scenes and see what's happening. She leads a sermon prep team, not filled with ministers, but some ministers, some elders, some uh, congregants, She leads a sermon prep team that helps us decide on the upcoming series. Not only that, but they even get into kind of crafting at least the base skeletal structure of each message. Um, Sometimes preachers can get lost answering questions nobody's asking. And so this sermon prep team helps us stay on point. And in those meetings, we always consider your needs. We try to consider the questions you're asking, the circumstances that you're facing uh, as we're efforting to nurture, and facilitate the spiritual life of our congregation. Those questions that we answer, what are your needs, what are your concerns, that's the pastoral concern of the sermon prep team of the local church. We also try to ask ourselves what's happening in the world. What should be happening in the world? What we can do as members of the beloved community, the Kingdom of God, to advance that in the world. And that particular emphasis is what we refer to as the prophetic concern. Local churches should not only be pastoral, we always say to be pastoral is to comfort the afflicted. We also should be prophetic. That means to afflict the comfortable. And so we try to do both of those things. Um, I think this sermon series we're in right now, Progressive Christianity is, ellipsis points, uh, I think it addresses both the pastoral and the prophetic concerns. So I've asked Mel to join me today to kind of help curate this message. Because we often find ourselves in sermon preparation collaborating. And in those collaborative moments, we often experience either just the two of us or five or six or seven sitting around kind of a synergy and a clarity uh, through more than one mind as we all kind of focus together. Napoleon Hill called that years ago a mastermind kind of effect. Um, And we we experience that more so than when we're kind of handling a subject alone. So personally, my favorite teaching setting is interactive it's one where everybody involved are participants not just with their ears but with their mouth settings like this are not that conducive to that large masses of people but I still believe the best teaching setting is one where the teacher facilitates and nurtures the voice and as first Corinthians 14 said we all prophesy and the others judge the Word of God comes through us but that's hard in a setting like this so I ask her to help me today because this is a really every one of these sermons are really really important and I want her to kind of help interject with questions, uh, ask for clarity where she thinks you would be looking for it, which she often does with me, and essentially just kind of represent you and help keep me on point. So to that end, Mel, tee up the subject the second message in our series, Progressive Christianity, is.
1: So hopefully you have a bulletin, and if you don't, I think we can put it up on the screens what the bulletin cover looks like. But we did this. It's a picture of an iPhone or a a smartphone, I think specifically an iPhone. And those ellipsis points, they come up when you are asking or texting someone anything, and they're responding back to you. Those three ellipsis points come up. And so we wanted to be clever and use that and wanted to explain that, just in case you don't have an iPhone, that it means that someone is still talking that there is still more to be said. And then you then, in response, are waiting and expecting more to be said. And so that translates for us that God's truth is not fully revealed yet, that we are always waiting that we as progressive Christians should be ready and attentive and perceptive to that. And then often, often when you use the ellipsis points, it usually indicates an omission of something, that a word or something is being left out, but can also indicate that there's an unfinished thought here, that there is a slight pause or a mysterious silence. And I love that because within progressive Christianity, there are less statements and less periods. There are more questions, there are more conversations, there are more dialogue and response. And so because of that then, it's characterized by a very openness within progressive Christianity. It's characterized by the very mystery of who God is, is, that there is an unfolding truth, and then there's always a humility then on our part to be open and respect that. And so progressive Christianity is a movement more than anything, and I love that. And we haven't talked about that a lot here. And it's not just that there are new answers to the same questions. Sometimes within progressive Christianity, when you truly grasp the lens, you realize that the questions we've been asking all along don't apply here anymore. And so we wanted to talk about that and set a foundation for us as we begin and explain a little bit of what this is, what this movement is. And we've been asking a lot of questions like, is there a God? I think that's where we have to start. Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is the nature of that God? What are the characteristics of that God? And maybe most importantly for us, what is God's relationship to us as humans? What is God's relationship to humanity? And so for many of us that grew up in a traditional evangelical setting, there is a paradigm that we are familiar with, and that is that we are born sinners, We are born sinners. We are not necessarily born the beloved of God. That is what we were taught, so many of us. And as we were born sinners then, we continued on our growth as humans and as we grew and matured, at some point we needed Jesus to intervene for us because God could not handle our sin. And then we accepted that and moved on from there. And so I want us to go back to Scripture today, and we're going to talk through two stories that we've talked about a lot here, but I want us to recognize right off the bat that it is a different paradigm in which we are speaking.
0: Yeah, it actually is. And to that end, progressive Christianity is not new. Uh, It's always been my sense that the tradition of Christianity is progressive in nature. Even my conservative theologian friends believe in the progressive revelation of the biblical text, where we disagree is most of them believe that the progressive revelation ends at the end of the first century, that everything that was to be revealed is revealed there. Progressive Christianity, which again I believe is the tradition of the church, doesn't say that the text is ever-changing. It simply follows that rubric of Jesus that you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And it has always been the history of the church that the church, every new movement within the church, which is the Pentecostal world I come from, uh, the Nazarene world that some of you come from, or the Baptist world, are, are a group of people who are saying, I think we're reading the text better. Now in that always lies potential arrogance and presumption. We should always override that with humility, but I think a careful kind of general look at the history of the church shows that we've always been digging into the text and hearing the text say things that we hadn't heard before. We've all had that experience personally, why couldn't we have that experience corporately? So that's what we're saying. Now to the end that Melissa just spoke, um, I, I wanna read a text and I wanna look quickly at two stories and we're gonna have to come back to those stories next week as we move into the next point. But the first story that I wanna look at that really speaks to this underlying premise of who is God, What is humanity and what is the nature of the relationship between those two? How does God respond to humanity and how does humanity respond to God? What's the basic intrinsic relationship inherently between those two? First story I wanna look at, and I'll just look at the first two verses of the text and then I'll just kind of elaborate on the story, is found in Luke 15. Anybody remember the story of the man who had two sons? All right, let's look at the first two verses of that text. Luke 15, one through two. And we're going to address the issue. Melissa already kind of primed it. But we're going to address the issue is the underlying premise on which we build our religious ideas that the nature of God's relationship with humanity is one of sin and separation or one of shame and estrangement, humiliation and alienation? I would contend that our text does not teach sin and separation. I'd contend that our text teaches shame and estrangement as the chief problem upon which we build our religious ideas and response. To that end, Luke Wait, 15. When yep. you
1: say estrangement, what do you mean?
0: Estrangement, that's a great great point. Estrangement is nuanced different from separation because separation implies that there is literal, technical separation and distance between the two. I heard the word distance, that there's distance. Estrangement and alienation are not actual distance but they're psychological distance. They are perceived distance. It's my sense. You know, when we say, well, you know, these two people in their friendship, they're alienated from one another. We're not necessarily saying that they're apart. People can be alienated in a marriage and still be in the same house, right? Still working at it, but there's a sense of alienation. So sin and separation is built on the model that God cannot be with sinners, so when we sin, God separates. And we don't even have to sin because we're born sinners, so God separates from that. So the inherent problem is that there is a necessary distance between our brokenness and God's holiness. Shame and estrangement says there is no separation between us and God, but there is a sense of separation, but it's not on God's side, it's on our side, and it's not the result of God responding to sin, it's a result of our psychology responding to shame. That's the contention, and I think our text says the latter. You may disagree, but Israel means to wrestle with God, so we wrestle with the text in Christianity, and let's wrestle a little bit. Luke 15, 1 through 2, one of the two seminal stories. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. So Jesus was with the sinners, You can go back to Luke 5, Luke 7, go on to Luke 19. This story repeats often. In Luke 7, a woman came literally into the house where Jesus was with the Pharisees, and she touched him. Remember the alabaster box and poured it out on his feet and touched him, and the Pharisees were aghast. Not only is she in the wrong place, she touched you, and you let her touch you, and they said, you're supposed to be a prophet, and you let a sinner come in contact with you. Now, the last I checked, one of the premises of Christianity is that Jesus is God. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So there's no good cop, bad cop in the Trinity, and one part that can do something that the other part can't do. Jesus said, I don't do anything except what I see my Father doing. So if you see Jesus touching sinners, guess what the Father's doing? Coming in contact with sinners. But there was a problem because the Pharisees had built a religious model on sin and, say it, separation and they said you're not separate from the sinners and they were grumbling look at that they grumbled about Jesus connection to sinners and said this fellow welcomes sinners and not only welcomes them table fellowship big thing in Semitic Middle Eastern cultures but this fellow eats with them so the religious leaders we're talking about religious systems We're not talking about those religious systems. Did you know every one of us has a religious system in our heart? Every one of us has a little Pharisee in our heart. Every one of us has the father and the elder brother and the prodigal in our heart, don't we? We're not talking about those people. We're talking about us people. The religious leaders were bothered that Jesus did not maintain a distance between himself and sinful people right that's what they were demanding you have got to maintain a proper distance why you're a rabbi you're a teacher what do we mean by that you are a man representing God you're God's representative and as such if you're representing God you are going to have to keep the respectable distance between yourself and sinners why because that's what God does right You've got to act like God. And if you're representing God, in this case, they said you're misrepresenting God by having contact with sinners. Therein, I think, lies the faulty premise that much of religion has been built on, not just ours. And I hate to say faulty because I think these things are maturing. I never want to cast dispersions. But the premise is that God's, and this is what I grew up with, God's holiness demands... That God necessarily has to be separate from human brokenness, sin, or degradation. Remember that? God is so holy, God can't be with us. And I think to myself that Jesus said, you want to learn about the Father? You want to know about God? Think about your own parenting. Which one of you would describe yourself as a great parent by saying, I am such a good parent that when my child is most broken, I can't be near them? And yet that was our definition of holiness. In other words, God cannot sully God's self by coming in contact with people like us, imperfect people like us. If that's the assumption, lots of decisions are made out of assumptions. If that's the base assumption, then religion begins the process of attempting to mediate between God and humanity because the two are apart. Religion comes in hoping to reduce the distance, hoping even to resolve the distance and erase the distance between the two. And from the earliest records of religion, not just ours but all the others, from the earliest records of religion, religious endeavors built upon that premise have had several common denominators. Almost every religion has been built upon the notion that the gods are angry, that the gods are capricious, that the gods are offended, and that the gods, therefore, have separated from us. And all of the things that we go through in life have to be the vengeance of God upon us. So religious systems are built upon the premise that these tsunamis, these typhoons, these hurricanes, these fires, these terrible things that happen in our life, our miscarriages are simply the result of the angry gods bringing justice to us. And every religious system in their own form generally begin to develop mechanisms to mediate that gap and to erase that gap. And we create things like priests. Priests are holy people who are holier than you that can go into the place and mediate your relationship with God. You don't want to go to the IRS so you get yourself a specialist that goes and meets with them. We develop priests. We develop altars altars are these physical spaces where God comes to one side we come to the other and there's a safe distance between us because we know God's out to get us we create temples holy places demilitarized zones where we hope that God will lay down the weapons and on those altars and in those temples these professionals that do our work for us they throw our sacrifices what are sacrifices they are us Costing ourselves dearly in an effort to hurt ourselves enough that maybe it will appease the God. And if Syracuse University imposes sanctions on itself, maybe the NCAA won't. It's my daughter running away from me up the stairs when she was three, hitting herself on the behind. <laughs> Not that I was going to hit her on the behind, but she assumed that about me and she was spanking her it's the little girl in third grade who worries about her body image and becomes the class clown and teases first about herself in an effort to cut your teasing short if we can sacrifice and hurt ourselves enough maybe it will appease the other side that's ubiquitous in almost every religion is this effort to make things right what if all of that is built upon an improper assumption that God's not actually on the other side of the gap away from us that God has never left us nor forsaken us and in our brokenness even came closer so the biblical story actually defends that our text begs the question that these premises aren't correct that they're misguided it's a faulty foundation And a great example is Luke 15. And I'll give five minutes to it and five minutes to the Genesis 1 story. And then we'll come back to it and look at it again next week. Jesus looks at the Pharisees who are grumbling and Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a story. The problem presented in the text is not that the tax collectors and sinners are necessarily separated from Jesus. Jesus is rocking along with the sinners and they're doing fine. But the religious folk, with their assumption, need ministered to. And Jesus said, I'm gonna tell you three stories. A man had a 100 sheep. One of the sheep did some bad stuff and so he kicked it out of the fold. No. One of the sheep got messed up and left. Who created the separation? Not the shepherd, the sheep. The shepherd, Jesus said, could not abide the separation. So the shepherd all night long looked for the lost sheep until he found it. Found the lost sheep, put it on his shoulders and came rejoicing back home. Second story, woman had 10 coins, lost one of them. And she swept the house all night long until she found it. Two lost things, one lost outside the house, one lost inside the house. Neither put away by the owner. Third story combines them. A man had two sons. Why do we call it the story of the prodigal? The story says he had two sons. One was a prodigal outside the house, one was a prodigal inside the house. Jesus said the one boy Both were born children of the father, right? The one boy couldn't embrace that and he said, I don't want to live here anymore and he went into the far country, lost everything he had and after losing everything he had, the Bible says he came to himself and said, what am I doing here? Nowhere does the story say that the father looked and said, get out of my house. You're not going to live like this. The boy separated from the father. The boy says, I'm going to go home, and all the way home he rehearses a story. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. Just make me a slave. And as the boy rounds the corner toward home, thinking to himself, I don't know if this is going to work, but it's the last chance I've got, the Bible said, here comes an old man. First Peter 4 and 8, Proverbs 10 and 12 says that love covers all sin. All sin. What covers sin? sin love and the Bible says the old man ran and he fell on the boy because love covers sin and the boy immediately said I am not worthy of this make me a slave and under what William Blake called the beams of love the boy could not endure them Blake said in his poem a little black boy we are put here a little while on this earth to learn to endure the beams of love To let God wash our feet and yet we resist him and the father fell on him ask yourself the problem ask yourself the question had the boy sinned yes was the boy's problem separation created by the father's holiness the father falls on him loves him, and underneath the love of the father, the boy says, I'm not worthy of this. Is that sin or is that shame? Are they experiencing separation or estrangement? Estrangement. It's alienation. The father then says, the father, when he hears the boy say, I'm not worthy of this, the father doesn't say, that would make a good praise and worship chorus. Although we've written a bunch of them on that premise. Because maybe in our self-loathing, if we tell God how bad we are, God will actually let us off the hook. God's never thought that in the first place. And the boy says, I'm not worthy of this. And then the father says, kill a fatty calf. And the question becomes, did the animal experience was the animal sacrificed because of sin or because of shame? What was it? Shame. The father didn't say, I see my boy coming. He has sinned so much, somebody's got to kill an animal to fix this between he and I. The father said, there's one thing that'll fix this between that boy and me. When he comes home, and I can get a hold of him in love because love covers a multitude of sins and the separation is not there but when the boy says I cannot endure this or appreciate it I can't enjoy it the father says kill a fatted calf put a ring on his finger and a robe on his body because this boy needs his shame covered so there is a biblical motif of animal sacrifice and covering But the atonement and the propitiation is not for the father's heart to be healed. It's for the son's heart to be healed. Atonement within scripture, animal sacrifice in scripture, therefore, is not man going to God saying, can you be with us now? But animal sacrifice has always been God coming to man and saying, can you believe me now? And if you couldn't believe it on the animals, God comes in flesh himself and says, how about that? Can you believe me now? So the point is that Jesus Christ and the mediating work in Scripture is not positioned as Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, going to the first person of the Godhead saying, can you be with them now? It is rather Jesus coming to the prodigal and saying, can you believe he's never left you? Because the issue is shame and separation. To carry the point further, the Bible said as they were parting and the boy was beginning to receive it, the boy... The boy, literally, as he received that, his father noticed that one of the other son was not there and the father said, where's the other boy? Servant said, he's up on the hill, pouting." The father goes to the other boy, the one who never left but was lost in the house, right? And he goes to him and said, what's wrong? And the boy says, I've been here slaving for you my whole life. Both sons had a slave mentality. One the slave mentality drew them to the hog pen the other had a slave mentality sitting in the Sunday school class and never leaving and The father looked at this one and said everything I've ever had is yours, but you haven't known it You're no different than the prodigal except he left and you didn't and the story ends with the elder brother grumbling about the connection of the father to the sinner son The story began with the Pharisees grumbling about his connection to sinners What was the story really about? The story wasn't about prodigals coming home The story was about religious false assumptions And our need, our shame-based, humiliated, alienated need To think that we're separated from God And the father now realizes in the story The tax collectors and the sinners didn't have as big of a problem As the Pharisees and the scribes and their problem was shame and estrangement. All right, took too long on that one. Let me give you the other one.
1: All I had to do was ask what is estrangement and we got yeah. all that. <laughs> That's great. There's a lot that that implies though. And I at least want to offer this right here before you get to the story of Eden. So that then affects, I mean, we were taught, many of us were taught that then we needed Jesus. Jesus had to die. We had to be covered in the blood of Jesus, at least in that analogy, in order for God to then see us us as worthy and to be with us. And I mean, that's... I just don't want to rush past that because that's a huge difference. And then I think it immediately then people would say, and there's been um, criticism of the progressive and liberal movement then, if we say, well, sin doesn't separate us, then most people then assume, we well, then do whatever sin. you want. To, yeah, yeah.
0: Sin's a big problem. Exactly. And the son was offered the gift of repentance. So we're going to talk about the gift of repentance and sin and all of that yeah. next week. Close this down today by telling you that our very original story tells the same story. Bible said that they were sinless and God came in the cool of the day. They were sinless. God came in the cool of the day. They were sinless. God came in the cool of the day. They sinned. And if you read the story through sin and separation, they sinned, showed up at the meeting place. God wasn't there. And they said, where are you, God? And God said, can't come down there, you dirty, nasty things. Get covered and I can come down. It's not the story, is it? They sinned. God still came, and I bet you he got there 30 minutes early if he's a parent like you. God got there 30 minutes early, and there was this sense of separation, and God said, where are you? What'd they say? We're hiding. God said, why are you hiding? They said, we're naked. We knew our nakedness mixed with your presence was a bad thing, and we hid ourselves because we knew you could not handle our brokenness. Notice in the text, the Bible doesn't say he made them in the image of God and they were naked and not sinful. We always get sexuality and nakedness right there in that sin thing. The big issue with nakedness and sexuality has less to do with sin and more than to do with shame. If you get the shame fixed, you'll be amazed how sin takes care of itself. But if all you do is hammer on the sin, you'll create even more shame and estrangement. The Bible said they were naked and not ashamed and now they sinned and they were naked and, say it, ashamed. So human brokenness was revealed as the presence of shame. God says, where are you? We're hiding, why are you hiding? We're afraid of you, why are you afraid of me? You cannot handle our brokenness. God says, come out from behind those bushes. They come out from behind the bushes, there they are with their pitiful fig leaves of addiction and isolation, all the ways we cover ourselves. God looks at them and says, you don't need that. And he uncovers them and when he uncovers them you tell me who blushes God or them they did because they were naked and sinful no they were naked and shamed shame. sin is human brokenness shame is my sense that God can't handle it you tell me what separated them in the story God's reaction to sin or their reaction to sin God's reaction to sin is what love covers a multitude of sins Our reaction to sin is what? Hide from God because somebody told us the gods can't handle us when we're broken. Like the young prostitute that said to Philip Yancey after selling her child, Yancey invited her to church and she said, why would I go to church? I already feel bad enough about myself. God uncovers them. They're naked and they're ashamed and God kills an animal. In our original story, again, an animal dies. An animal is sacrificed. You tell me. God killed an animal. The first animal killed sacrificially in the Bible was killed by God, not a priest. God killed the animal. Did he cover their sin or their shame with it? Shame. God did not say from the heavens, you've sinned. Kill some animals, cover yourself, and I can come down. Put something on. God came down he understood knew their nakedness was not blushing in their nakedness but as they blushed and said we are not worthy we are bad we are awful we are worms God killed an animal and there was the first propitiation or covering and he covered their sexual parts and they had yet to sin sexually and therein lies the story humanity experienced sexuality shamefully before we ever experienced it sinfully. And God covers their shame. And then He sends them east of Eden, not kicking them out, that's sin and separation. He sends them east of Eden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in their broken state. And when He sends them out east of Eden, they leave with the cherubims behind them and they hear rustling behind them and they look and here comes God with His knapsack. And they say, where are you going? And he said, I'd a lot rather live out there with you than in here without you. Because that's what the shepherd does. That's what the God with the lost coin and the man with the two sons does. So the story, and we'll come back, we'll pick it up next week. The story, biblically, is not built upon the premise of sin and separation. It's built upon the premise that God can handle sin and sin's a real part of our life. Can you say amen? but the thing that has separated us has actually not separated us because where can I go from your presence where can I flee from your spirit if I ascend into the heavens you're there if I make my bed in the grave and shield the underworld hell thou art with me because nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus nothing But I tell you what can estrange us and alienate us from God is our sense of shame and a long-held religious baggage that we could not be good enough. And underneath the blows of God's mercy and love, we are still singing songs. We are not worthy, just make us a slave. And God is saying, kill a calf, get a ring, get a robe, throw a party. I got to convince these people of how much I love them. That's the biblical story. That's the biblical story.